This episode of the Coin Spice Podcast is brought to you by Cash Shuffle. Because what you do with your money is your business. To give this new product a try for fungibility and privacy, head on over to electroncash.org, download their latest wallet 4.0.0, and give it a spin. Cashshuffle.com for more information. Because what you do with your money is your business. is really going on crypto savages you are listening to the coin spice podcast with host c edward kelso editor-in-chief at coinspice.io your home for spicy crypto things on the net all right so this is a, a a big thrill for me i've been a fan for a while and i have of course with me uh, john popola who is part of emergent order which i guess is best described as a creative studio uh, based in austin texas and uh, they've done some fantastic educational work. And every so often, I like to step back away from cryptocurrency proper and kind of get into the fundamentals, the sort of the background, kind of why we do what we do. But before I go too much further, hey, John, thanks so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's really great to, to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Very cool. So, I, you know, you came into my orbit as, as a lot of things do. And I was trying to think back as to, exactly how you did and you know most things come through Jeffrey Tucker and I'm not sure how the universe exactly orders that but uh, something like could it be 10 years ago uh, you just sort of burst onto the scene I, I know he, he threw out an email or was in a message somewhere I was on you know some sort of chain or whatever and he linked to this crazy video that was uh, Keynes versus Hayek uh, fear the boom and bust and I, I you know I I definitely want to get into the craziness and the madness that sort of uh, uh, ensued after that thing took off and went viral. But how on earth does a guy who has, you know, video production background uh, with MTV, with Spike and, and some other notable um, uh, outlets even get interested in a 20, I guess not even like a mid 20th century, rather abstract, uh, bordering on archaic debate between, um, an English economist and John Maynard Keynes and, uh, and uh, the Austrian, um, you know, uh, sitting at the foot of Mises, uh, F.A. Hayek. I mean, how, how do you even broach that subject even to begin with? Well, um, I was like, I think everybody else trying to come to terms with what was happening in 2008 uh, with the, global financial crisis and the wow. crack up of the mortgage market. And, um, and because I was old enough to now at that time be married and have a mortgage and be, and, you know, be sort of aware of the role of interest rates, at least in terms of um, my mortgage and why, and, and how they impact the decision-making in that context. I, uh, I just went, started to go slowly down a rabbit hole of trying to understand what was going on. I've always been fairly politically minded, but I really put that on the back burner when I got out of college and, and went to work at MTV, not the least of which because I was, you know, pretty conservative at the time. And that was not exactly the, uh, um, the common worldview among my peers. And so I, you know, in the name of uh, my priorities, I thought, well, I'm just going to keep my politics to myself 
and um, focus on the creativity and focus on the work and uh, let those conversations happen uh, in private. And um, which is, you know, it is, it's fine. It's, I, I, I'm not somebody that holds any grudges or this us versus them stuff that people get wrapped up in. I, I'm just not into that. I think that's a waste of time and energy. And I, I think, I feel like it's the kind of thing that people do that don't have a real life. <laughs> they don't have real friends or real family that they care enough about or, or they have them, but they don't care enough about them. So they wrap their identities up in their politics. Um, so I just set that stuff aside for the most part. And, um, but it came roaring back with the financial crisis and with the extraordinary news and policies and public debates that were taking place. And so along the way, I, you know, really thanks to Ron Paul, who single-handedly, I think, introduced a lot of people to these issues surrounding monetary theory and, and the Fed and the role of the Fed in the business cycle. And he's getting, you know, he's just drawing on, you know, the classical and Austrian economists like Hayek and Mises and and, yeah, and um, I, I and can't. That, you know, I, I really can't get over as as I look back at his his two presidential runs, how what an anomaly he was. I, I think I took it for granted at the time when he went on the Tonight Show and turned to the audience of you know umpteen millions of people and started talking about, well, you know, I follow Austrian economics and Mises. I mean, I don't expect to hear anything like that ever again. So um, he definitely introduced uh, <laughs> a, a whole generation. <laughs> Yeah, he he he's pretty unique in time and and space for sure. And um and so I reached out to my favorite podcasting economist Russ Roberts because I just loved his podcast Econ Talk and I loved his approach to people and to subjects and said I want to do a collaboration. It turned out I was more passionate about the actual Austrian business cycle theory than Russ. He's <laughs> Russ is a a big believer and in, in a big fan of Hayek but is in a way super Austrian because he's very skeptical of any macro theory, even the, even the Austrian business cycle theory. I think Austrian devotees can sometimes get a little too mechanical in how they think about like, Oh, well, interest rates went down. So everything's a bubble now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's not necessarily true because there's supply and demand and interest rates are a price and you can't really reason just based on the price. Like if gas prices go up, is it because supply went down or demand went up? You don't know which one it is and it, or in what proportions. You know, I've learned a lot from Russ. And, and we, we began that process of trying to come up with something to do creatively together. And the result of that was Fear the Boom and Bust. And when that took off, I thought, well, it's the two things. It was, it was released in 2010. And I sort of thought that my interest would start to wane in this stuff as the uh, recession sort of um, began to recede. And mm -hmm. it was sort of memory, the, old, wasn't you know, it? the president. Yeah. And, you know, and the memory uh, and the, um, the, the presidential election waned, uh, but you know, now we're in like the era where it's always presidential election politics 24 seven. So uh, that's not the way it used to be. It's like, I remember 2000, you know, 2001 people were going nuts about, you know, Bush v. Gore 2000. And then it kind of stopped being all about the president all the time. I mean, uh, so it, it's a really weird time we live in now where it's, everything's always 
and this insane news cycle about politics, national politics all the time. Um, yeah. But I just never lost the bug. The bu- I got, I got, I got the disease, <laughs> the economics disease, and it never, it, it, you know, there is no cure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and you sort of go down a, a, a deep, deep, deep rabbit hole. So uh, Keynes versus Hayek, in, in case uh, listeners don't already know, um, is a, I, I guess for lack of a better phrase, it's a rap video. It's so much more than that. But uh, John and company, and, and by the way, Russ Roberts' Econ Talk is easily one of my favorite podcasts. And he can go from straight economics, you know, what is econometrics or high theory into what I think is one of his best interviews, which was with uh, Christopher Hitchens over um, uh, his work on Orwell. So uh, Roberts is rangy. He's, he's, he's an incredible podcaster. If you haven't already listened, just get out there and listen. You'll, you'll be better for it. But you, you, you produce a, a rap video, and the, the danger is always, you know, kind of like those 70s Christian folk videos, right? They uh, with a toothy Protestant, um, uh, you know, youth group leader um, trying to be cool and hip, that they're dated, they're stale. And this one has so much production value to it. And it's got this swagger and these inside jokes and it's hooky. It's so, so good. And I know you've been told this a million times, but it really is a, a, kind of an easy way to introduce somebody to a debate that perhaps they didn't know even occurred and so you you (laughs) you put together Hayek versus Keynes and what was the reaction like say outside of academia or um outside of you know people who might have gravitated toward the subject anyway like what what did what did you hear Uh, you know it's um it's funny I remember when we released the video on January January 28th, I think it was, 2010. And we were very fortunate because Russ had a great relationship with the folks that did the Planet Money podcast on NPR. Oh, right. So they actually did a story about the video. And that story actually ran, a shorter version of the story actually ran on All Things Considered on the radio, which has like 12 million listeners in in the New York City area. And and I, I guess around the country because of digital. And I was on set in Los Angeles directing a shoot for a, a new show on Spike. And it took all my willpower to not just sit there refreshing my phone because I was watching <laughs> the views on this video. Cause we just, I mean, there was no spend behind it. It wasn't like we paid to buy views or anything, which is, you know, which is necessary now because the, there's just so many, there's trillions of videos out there. Um, it, it just was like at the end of the first day, I think we had like 150 or 250,000 views wow. and it just took off like this rocket. And I and then we ended up getting invited to, I have screenshots of this in that first like 24, 48 hours. You know, the, this video was on the front, on the cover, like the, the homepage above the fold on CNN and like Bloomberg and wow. uh, you know the New York Times economics pod uh, blog, and uh, you know it was like incredible. And CNBC, and you know, so it, it was just a completely crazy, like nothing I had done in television had achieved that kind of organic 
reach with one exception, which is I did a shot for shot recreation of the original back to the future um, theatrical teaser trailer. And that went crazy viral and got like 5 million <laughs> views in the first 48 hours. And unfortunately it, it, it probably have like 200,000 views and 200 million views now, except that Viacom was in a spat with Google and YouTube and they ended up pulling it. Which is a real bummer. You can still find some. There's reposts that have like 10 million views of this thing, but I'm sure it was great. I'm sure it was wonderful. But you know, I mean, frankly, even if you got 100 million views for the Back to the Future thing, uh, as someone you know listening to you talk, I'd be like, well, duh. I mean, like that that I could see happening. But Keynes versus Hayek? No way, dude. No way would I breaking through the matrix. Yeah, I think it was just. you know, it was a concern that was in the zeitgeist. It was like, what are we supposed to do with in the aftermath of this collapse? And, um, you know, we were, uh, the Obama administration went all in on Keynesianism. And, you know, this was all resurgent because Keynesianism was basically discredited in the 70s. Uh, you know, there's, there's always natural Keynesianism in government because politicians always want to spend money. So there's always like this excuse to deficit spend and claim it's going to stimulate the economy, but that's just crooked. You know, that's just a self-interested scam. Um, The actual like theoretical arguments basically got decimated during the 1970s where unemployment was going up at the same time as inflation, which the Keynesian economists at the time claimed was impossible because of quote unquote slack in the economy. Um, The stagflation idea. Yeah, so stagflation really blew away. The, the, the idea of the Phillips curve, that there's a trade-off between employment and inflation is nonsense because uh, um, there obviously isn't. But, uh, there's, um, but there you have it. I mean, you know, the, the, there's deflation in Japan with 3% unemployment. Like, give me a break. Who still believes this nonsense? <laughs> but what's great about the Keynes versus Hyde video, and I think one of the many reasons as to why it did so well which is uh, I would like to lead into kind of your newer project now and how you're approaching it. But I could not tell, and you you spoke earlier in the podcast here of kind of your tone and how you look at the world and how you approach things. And the us versus them is is so played out, even though I I love it and I'm a tribalist and cheerleader for my side and everything. But (laughs) I I, I do appreciate that, that tone because when I delivered the video, even though people knew it was from me and I would repost it and they go, here's another, you know, idiot posting his silliness again. When they watched it, they were like, I cannot tell from which side this Popola guy or um, Emergent Order or whomever, I, I, I cannot tell who the makers were rooting for. Um, and you were so generous and you were so charitable in the way that you presented the Keynes argument. We call it now, I guess, steel manning as opposed to straw manning. So you, you really did put forward you know, Keynes' best ideas, I mean, as much as you could in, in, in a, you know, a few-minute rap video. But I, I, I was a little worried when, again, I found it. I was like, okay, so they're just going to take apart uh, Keynes. This is going to be a worthless exercise. But I think you really did frame it as an important debate. And, you know, as I found out later, you know, you have a, you, you have a perspective. But you were, it, I, it was important for you, I guess, to, to make sure that all sides are heard, right? 
you know, it's funny. If you actually look at, like, like most of us, if you look at some of my Facebook posts, you wouldn't feel like I was the most even-handed, uh, fair <laughs> broker all the time because uh, I think social media brings out the, the tribalist in all of us. And it certainly is fun to, um, you know, gin up that, that energy, like that fire in your belly for the things you believe in. And believe me, I have a lot of fire in my belly for stuff. Uh, but I think that when it comes to first, I think, I think the creative process is, um, it takes so much more effort than blathering on social media. And so if you're going to put that much time and effort in, first of all, you know, it's so much better to create something that's going to have some longevity and have some, um, be able to be scrutinized. So that's one aspect of it is I just want to make something that's more durable than like a throwaway sort of piece of propaganda. Just to the second thing is, yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, there's, there's all these fly by night new media companies that churn out crap 24 hours a day until they're, equity Ponzi scheme collapses. And uh, that's just not the way I like to do things creatively. I like to put a lot more of of intention into my work. And so that tends to moderate things, if you will, because you spend more time on on the writing. I do just think in general as an ethic that if you don't understand the other point of view, you can't even claim to understand your own. I'm paraphrasing John Stuart Mill. Yeah. You it's a lot more work to understand Keynes when you think Hayek is right and you think capitalism and free enterprise and laissez-faire is the way to go, both ethically and just consequentialistically, like, you know, just in terms of outcomes. Uh, but I, I, th- I think that makes it more fun. I, 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 intellectually, it's way more fun to actually grab, be able to understand the other side. It makes you a much better debater because you you understand their perspective and they're not going to you're not going to get hit with some unanticipated question that you never really grappled with so uh, the other thing i think is and i did think about this from the outset is i wanted everyone to be able to share this and i wanted it to have the potential to get used in schools and a one-sided piece of propaganda is not going to get used in schools and so to from my perspective Hayek was so underrepresented relative to his contributions. I mean, he's one of the single greatest thinkers of the past 150 years. And most people that study economics don't hear about him. I mean, never mind whatever cockamamie economics degree people like AOC got at her her school, which is uh, might as well have been a pamphlet. Um, You know, you can go to MIT and not necessarily learn Hayek. Right, right. No, it's you're crazy. Right. You know, the guy won a Nobel Prize. I mean, he's like one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. So to me, just pulling him up, pulling his chair up to the table and letting and giving him an equal voice was the goal. And that's what we set out to do. And that's how we approached it. Brilliant. It was, it was brilliant. And again, people that I showed the video to were unable to ferret out exactly what the angle of the video was. So it was done brilliantly. So now you're, you know, you're 10 years out, millions of views, and we're in a new era where socialism is, is coming back with a vengeance. 
uh, at least uh, rhetorically, you know, how much it, it is real socialism or not. Everybody debates. But it certainly is in the zeitgeist again. The younger folks uh, approaching presidential elections and midterm elections are all about democratic socialism. So it's, it's, it's back up again. So now you're on to a, to a new project where, <clears throat> again, you're taking rather obscure 20th, or actually, I guess Mark's not a 20th century thinker, but you're taking rather uh, relatively obscure thinkers um, in terms of what they covered, and you're going to try to re represent that debate. Uh, can you go into a little bit about your, your Mises versus Marx uh, idea? Sure. So we, um, I've teamed up with, you know, you mentioned Jeffrey Tucker. So I've teamed up with um, Ed Stringham and Jeffrey Tucker at the American Institute for Economic Research, uh, you know, to bring this debate to life. This was the third video in my mind going back eight years. I wanted to do oh, Mises wow. versus Marx almost as soon as fight of the century was done. It's interesting that at the time it seemed like maybe more of a stretch. Like would people is talking about socialism really something that is on the zeitgeist? Yeah. There was Occupy Wall Street and a sort of fringe of people who were calling right. for socialism and communism and wearing Che Guevara shirts and mm -hmm. thinking but that they weren't um, naming it. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't, you know, there wasn't a mainstreaming of that. You know, you had radical fringe on the um, left who were, saying yeah socialism for sure let's do that let's go let's let's try that because it's never been tried for real or whatever and um but today oh my gosh i mean who would have imagined 30 years after the fall of the berlin wall it's like you know the marx has this great line history repeats itself first as tragedy then as farce and we're definitely in the farce phase right now. We're, we, we, have, we do have all the, the lyrics are fully written. We're in the music production process. We're working um, with two new uh, collaborators, Tripp and Tyler, who are these hilarious and fantastic YouTubers who've got, done some amazing videos to play Mises and Marx. Um, I'm writing it with my uh, head writer here at Emergent Order, Marshall Walker Lee. And, um, and so we, you know, we're going to be shooting in, in about in about a month, we're uh, we're going to be shooting late July. We've got an Indiegogo campaign going right now to help with the post production process, and um, and so that's really exciting because we've uh, we've we've actually exceeded our funding goal there. But there's a lot of opportunities to uh, make use of more resources. So anybody who's interested in this socialism versus capitalism debate getting a fair shake and a strongly worded shake from both sides, please check it out. Um, For sure. And I, I'm, I'm applying, it's the same recipe. You know, it's very equal, it's very even-handed. I will say that the, um, you know, some people have asked, well, how can you be even-handed when, you know, Keynesianism and this macroeconomic stuff has, this, has a lot of subtlety and complexity where you can argue that, Oh, things would have been worse without the stimulus, and it's, there's not really knockdown, surefire falsifications for it, really, because of the macroeconomics. Right. Keynes, is, is Keynes at least believed business. in private property, right? I mean, he at least had right. some sort of market sensibilities. Yeah, you know, when um, when Keynes responded to the um, uh, the road to serfdom. He wrote a letter to Hayek saying that he, you know, largely agreed with the book, but disagreed where the line should be drawn as far as the role for planning. And he thought mm -hmm. there was a bigger role for state planning 
than Hayek did, but that there was a line and it was about debating where that line is. Um, so, you know, whereas Marx, he is um, trying to reimagine the entire, con- the entire sort of social construct from the ground up. And so what we're trying to do, and you can say, well, I mean, come on, like there's never been a successful socialism. The closest you could argue that has, has occurred is the kibbutzim and um, Israel. Yes. And most of them couldn't survive the process. They've, they've, they mostly abandoned um, communal property in order to survive. Because it turns out when nobody own, when, and when everybody owns stuff, nobody does. And you turn everything into a tragedy of the commons where people free ride and take more than they should. And, you know, it's, it's like everybody becomes like poachers in, 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 of elephant, elephants in Africa. Nobody owns the elephants, and so anybody can take them and they get depleted. And, um, and, and I think that's a fair argument. <laughs> I mean, I, I personally obviously agree with that argument. Sure. I think socialism is an idea whose time has long since passed. But just because I believe that doesn't mean the rest of the world agrees, and, and Marx is arguably the most influential thinker of the past 250 years. I, I think so that's, that's rather not than a small just point at all. Around, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like we have to contend with his success and idea, his, his intellectual and, and, and um, uh, spiritual success, if you will. Cause I think it's some, in some sense it, it's, he almost enters the world of metaphysics with the way he concerns sure. himself with whether people are manly and are, re- are returned to the physicality of making things and being alienated from the things that we make. And there's these almost metaphysical sociological things that when you read him and I have not exhaustively read Marx, it's, it's a, and he's a tough read just like Hayek and Mises are. Um, uh, but you do get, he's rousing and um, he's potent. And so we've tried to capture that as best we can with the lyric. And I, I, I'd like to think that somebody who is sympathetic to Marx would look at this and say, well, hey, they steel manned him. <laughs> they didn't, exactly. they didn't just set him up to get knocked down, you know? And will this, I don't want you to, to reveal too much if, if you don't want to, but will this be another hip hop uh, uh, flavor? Oh, Yes. No, I th- there's something so so great about um, hip hop and, and rap music as a as a format for this kind of dialogue or dialectic, if you will, because the lyrics are dense. Um, they, you know, battling is part of the genre, and that kind of back and forth between voices is is, is mostly you find that in. It's rare to find that in other musical forms, and I just think music in general is such a powerful emotional um, art form that you know, my favorite stuff, my favorite work has strong music components to it. So, you know, this is very much true to, true to form uh, to the original Keynes versus Hayek rap videos. It's, uh, you know, we're just trying to, again, like we always do, take it to the next level in every way we possibly can from production value to music, music to everything about it. We're trying to one-up ourselves. And in a way, this is kind of a prequel, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> just thinking about it now, because if people were, which, which they definitely were, more familiar with Hayek than they ever would be of Mises, it's actually Hayek who sort of 
you know, inherits the Misesian tradition, uh, goes off in his, in his certainly his own direction. But some people even said that Hayek's Nobel Prize was sort of a nod uh, to Mises, who died a, a few years earlier uh, without that kind of recognition. Who, who was Ludwig von Mises, and, and, and why, why do you set him against Karl Marx? I think that it's really important to understand that Mises had some strong disadvantages in terms of uh, his opportunities to really be celebrated in the public eye. You know, he was writing, you know, at a time as the Nazis were, 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 were taking power and was really on the run from the Nazis. And, and so, and he didn't enter academia when he came to America with the same opportunities that Hayek did. And so I, I think he, is an unsung hero of the liberal tradition in a lot of respects. There's obviously organizations like the Mises Institute, which are dedicated to him. I don't, I don't think outside of, of, of that he's gotten enough recognition. And the fact of the matter is, is that Mises wrote a critique of socialism and of socialist central planning in the 1920s, um, socialist calculation in uh, ca- economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth, right. which is, in my opinion, a everlasting and devastating critique of the concept of central planning without and the elimination of private property. He he was so sharp, and his understanding of the challenge of making making decisions in a complex world filled with millions of resources and millions of uses of time, talent, and treasure and the, and the necessary need for a coordinating um, calculation device, a metric of, of, of decision-making. And, and that metric of decision-making in a market economy is, is prices. And the basic argument for me is, look, um, without private property, you can't have buyers and sellers bidding on the basis of supply and demand. So, you, you know, and so you can't have prices that have any meaning because prices in the marketplace are a kind of information signal about whether something is in, is in demand or not, whether something is scarce or not, relatively speaking. And so this change of prices that we observe generates information, not just about, um, not just about the cost, but about the opportunity. And, you know, he basically lays out that you can't collectivize the means of production without eliminating the single mechanism for trying to decide which means of production to use when and whether to create new means of production. There's a kind of um, uh, static world snapshot at the heart of all socialist calculus, socialist sort of theorizing, which is we already have these quote unquote means of production. And the only con- d- debate is who is in control of them? And is it is these evil bourgeois capitalists or is it quote the people? And what Mises lays out is a, mul- a multi-layered critique of that, but it, at the heart of it is this challenge that without private property and a market in capital goods, in all goods, but especially in the capital goods, in the things that we use to make stuff, you, will ju- you won't have any ability to calculate. And so you'll end up with a, this sort of joke of the Soviet model where you'd, 
you know, these sort of value destroying state owned firms where, um, you know, there's only one car and it doesn't work. And why, and, 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 you know, the, the old saying was, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. <laughs> that was a, right. an old saying. And, and they, and they often relied on the, on the black market, which ironically, the, the sort of the, the agorist model, so to, to be able to get prices, they, they would sort of have to sort of look to the black markets and look to actual functioning markets, right? Yeah, there was um, uh, Soviet central planners would import the Sears Roebuck catalog to try to get a sense of what things should be should cost. So for a global revolutionary movement that is supposed to ultimately achieve total and totalitarian success, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> like, well, at all, we can make it work. We just need those lovely people at Sears Roebuck to tell us what everything should cost. <laughs> As if that even was relevant to the cost structures of right. uh, timber and steel and labor and everything in, in Russia. It just is like a, but that's how ignorant you are as an individual when it comes to the complexity of, a, of an economy with trillions of decisions being made and being mediated by the market and by prices. And this is as devastating a critique today of things like the Green New Deal or, um, you know, the central planning of credit through things like the, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, every one of these sort of top-down command and control schemes falls prey to Mises's original critique about social, the, the, the impossibility, he called it, that socialist calculation is impossible and that it is it can only even appear to function essentially by parasitically relying on private markets in adjacent things. So you'll hear people say, well, what do you mean socialism is impossible? The, the post office works. In fact, let's turn it into a bank. <laughs> it's like, well, the post office doesn't have to worry about what the cost of lumber is to build a new post office. There's a market in lumber for that. <laughs> right. So, and, you and know, or, 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 to, to, or how much it's going to cost to buy that next vehicle. It's just, it's all... That's what the market's for. All it, it's a government-provided service. So the, the, this sort of expansion of like, well, the government, firefighting is socialism. No, it's not. It's just, <laughs> it, the, the, the fact that there's a police force does not mean socialism works. It, that right. argument suggests that there's only two systems, socialism and anarchy, that there's no middle ground where you can have a government and private property and government provided services. It's like a crazy um, appropriation of, of, of something to say to, you know, that's a, that's a common, you know, a capitalism, a love story by um, Michael Moore exactly. plays the Soviet anthem and shows the firefighters and the police and public schools, which are kind of a disaster unless you're rich um, and says, look, we already have socialism. It's like, well, no, we don't. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, to, to be fair, uh, which I'd rather not, but to be fair, uh, Mises uh, uh, was known for his stridency. And anybody who deviated a little bit, he was by no means an anarchist, um, but, uh, which I would love to claim him as. But he, he would definitely call you a socialist if you hinted towards, he even wrote a book or there was one assembled called The Anti-Capitalist Mentality. He was kind of known as a strident guy. So, if you, if you moved away from it, and I think 
some of that's been misinterpreted down the line so that uh, especially guys on my side uh, go go and i'm just as guilty of this uh, if we see even a little deviation from that uh, we call it socialism so um but in any case yeah the political the political right in general has done the debate a disservice by calling everything socialism mm-hmm. I think that's a, I think that's a, it's a significant, it's a problem I'm guilty of as much as anybody else. But when you really stop to think about it, um, it's, it's, it's not too dissimilar from what we have now where everybody to the quote unquote right of Bernie Sanders is a white supremacist. <laughs> right. It's, it, well, you realize now you're, you're creating cover for actual white supremacists when you paint such a broad brush. Great. And I think unfortunately, um, you know, the John Birch society and, things thing and like you know radical folks and i'm myself i'm a radical and i'm I'm guilty of this too um you know when you call every social security is socialism it's like well (laughs) it's not it's not collectivized property and central planning and the means of production it it's a welfare program and you know it's a ponzi scheme and that's fine like we can call it a ponzi scheme because it is but it's not socialism Again, like uh, that, that does, that's the opposite of what the Marxists do. And to say that we, re- we reduce the world to either communism or anarchy. And it's, I just think that that's where, you know, where are these anarchist utopias uh, and where are these yeah. co- communist utopias? Like at the far ends of the spectrum, um, you know, I think heaven is surely an anarchy. There's no need for government in heaven. <laughs> so, I, you know, so I think there's, and there's nothing wrong philosophically with saying government is force and therefore it has no legitimate moral authority. I think that's a totally legitimate argument, but it is a moral argument. It's not a, an empirical one. I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying it's, it's you got to kind of understand what category you're arguing in. Because, it, you know, when you get down to, well, how do the institutions of private property tend to actually work? we create little forms of government at some level. I mean, I live in a, I actually live in a small town inside of Austin. The, the, the residents are only like 800 people. What's the difference between um, the governance of an 800 person town and an 800 person company and their policies? It's not that hard to move out of the town. It's not that hard to quit the company. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's distinctions there at that level where the freedom to exit and the cost of exit is comparable, they're pretty comparable. Like, okay, I, you know, this downtown says I'm not allowed to cut down a tree over 28 inches in diameter. I think that's an infringement on my freedom, but I don't have to live there if I don't want to. Right. You know, my, 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 my company has a dress code. I don't like it. Well, I don't have to, I don't have to work there if I don't want to, you know, as the units of governance get bigger, and as the a, a, the cost of escape gets higher, I think you know we really get into some some trouble. Um, but like to your point, Mises is a hardcore guy, and that makes him the perfect combatant with with Marx, who was absolutely a polemicist in every sense. Yeah, I, I cannot wait to see what you guys come up with. Um, the, I've been speaking with the great John Popola, who uh, is an educator and entertainer. Um, he's also an artist. And everything he touches, I've seen some of his, uh, his political work um, for foundations and so on. 
He's just an incredible, incredible voice. Someone who's sober, he's got his bags packed, he's ready to make the argument. Emergent Order and his work need your support, so get out to Indiegogo. We'll link to that in the show notes. So lastly here, how can listeners follow your work and, and find you? Well, um, I, I appreciate all the kind words, um, and thanks for having me on. You definitely um, ch- subscribe to our YouTube channel, which uh, which is emer- youtube.com slash emergent order. This was formerly the Econ Stories channel, and we've just consolidated all of our efforts under the emergent order banner. Um, if you're interested in this debate about socialism versus capitalism, another piece of, piece of work that I've spent the past three years doing is a feature film starring Arthur Brooks called The Pursuit, which is available now on iTunes. And so you can get that on iTunes, um, and it's going to be available on Netflix in August. And, uh, of course, you know, check, check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook and, uh, and all the rest. I'm not a big Twitter user. I think Twitter is basically a, a, a cesspool of despair. So <laughs> but connect with me on Facebook. I can, I'm happy. I'll be happy to, you know, respond in kind. Spicy. Spicy.